Good Friday is a tough day to preach. I mean, we all come here to remember the sacrifice that God made through his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ. And if you don't know, here's a spoiler alert, Jesus died. We look forward to Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the conquering of death, a renewed hope, an explosively joyous celebration as we look at the empty tomb. That's coming up on Easter Sunday. And today, it's a depressing day. It is a day of death and mourning And that's hard. Two months ago, I lost my grandmother. And I was asked to officiate that service. And it was really hard just to keep myself pulled together. And all I wanted to do was just crouch down behind the pulpit and cry. Because death is hard. I remember a time um, before Wendy and I returned back to China, we visited with her grandma. And as we were leaving, we said our goodbyes. And we both cried as we were walking away, knowing that would be the very last time we would see Grandma Kay alive because she was older and we knew that she wouldn't last through another one of our terms overseas. And that sucks. The loss we experience in death is awful. All of you sitting here have experienced those same things. And as we deal with the loss of a loved one, our our mind wants to make peace with that situation because we know that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, are saved. And we look forward to the day where we can see them again in heaven. But not to make too trite of the reality that our hearts break and our chests heave with sobs and we are just left feeling the loss and anger and emptiness and we don't know how to move forward. The pain in those moments is like nothing else. And that's the place where we will be left, the disciples will be left by the end of the message today. A place feeling hopeless. Perhaps even thinking, God can't do anything more about this. So it's a heavy day. Be prepared for that. But let's back up a step and see how how we got to that point. If you were here last night, we took time to remember um, the time Jesus spent with his disciples, the meal that he had with his closest friends, how he taught us to love, and he, he, he showed what it meant to love by serving them and washing their feet. 
even showing love to someone who appeared on the outside to be a friend, but was truly plotting against him. The Jewish leaders were bent on taking Jesus down because he distracted from their authority, from their rule. He brought a new message that disrupted their traditions and the way of doing things. They needed to quiet his voice, to stop his message. They needed to get rid of him to retain their power. And Judas, one of the 12, was the tool that they were going to use to exact their vengeance on Jesus. So we come to John chapter 18, and I'll summarize this chapter. Jesus and his disciples are in the olive grove, and a group of men come to arrest Jesus. Jesus, that's their guy. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. He is the king that has returned to reign. All of their hope was in him. All of their hope. The apostles put all of their eggs into one basket. And now there were these people standing before them, ready to just rip it away from them. And the righteous anger that Peter must have had pumping through his veins. Maybe he even had that vein in his neck that was about ready to explode. Realizing that they had come to arrest Jesus, to take him away. And then, and then seeing Judas standing on the wrong side of the line, that betrayer. So Peter drew his sword. He was ready for battle. He bared arms and he was not going to let anyone take his Jesus from him. And then slash. Off comes the ear as a warning shot. And Jesus says, no, Peter. This is not the way. Holster your weapon. Then Jesus is cuffed and taken away to his first round of interrogations and physical abuse before he's sent off to the higher court, the governor, Pilate. When Jesus arrives at the governor's mansion, Pilate goes out to the crowd and he asks them, all right, so tell me, what did this guy do? And they say, well, we wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, right? What'd he do? Well, he did something or we wouldn't have brought him here. So Pilate says, all right, that's a very vague answer. Why don't you guys go ahead and take this one all by yourselves? And they said, no, no, no. This guy deserves death and you Sir Governor, are the only one that has the authority to sentence him to that. So, Pilate goes and has a short dialogue with Jesus, comes back out to the crowd and says, yeah, no, this guy, he's innocent. He didn't do anything. No one could answer Pilate's questions about the crime Jesus was being accused 
No one presented any propaganda or accusations or facts. No, there was no evidence, real or fabricated. Pilate saw nothing wrong and he proclaimed Jesus as not guilty. And he even appealed to the Jewish, Jewish custom of releasing someone during this time of Passover. So taking a reasonable and what I think is a logical approach, he goes to the crowd and says, I suggest we release Jesus. Why should we punish someone who's innocent? And after this suggestion was offered, the crowd shouted back, no, not this man. And I think, well, where were the voices in the crowd that liked Jesus? Where were the people who believed his message? Where was Andrew or Philip? Why don't we hear Nathaniel's voice crying out in the crowd, he's innocent. John, the disciple who seems to have the closest um, access in these proceedings, why didn't he have Jesus' back? I mean, this was an eyewitness account. But Jesus was alone. So he is robed, he is mocked, he is crowned with a crown of thorns, he is beaten with a whip, and then he's brought back out to the crowd. And that's where we pick this up in John 19, verse 4. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Look, here is the man. And when they saw him, the leading priests and the temple guards began shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. And the Jewish leaders replied, By our law he ought to die because he called himself the son of God. Whoa. What was that? Those words struck fear into Pilate. So he drags Jesus back inside and he says, who are you? Tell me really, who are you? Are you, are, are you the son of God? Where are you from? Answer me! I mean, Pilate, think of the fear that had to just strike right through his entire body. If this was truly a God, the son of a God standing before him, and he, Pilate, were to have him sentenced to death, what would the gods do to Pilate in return? And Pilate didn't want to mess with a heavenly vendetta against him. And Jesus responds. Uh, he said, you, only, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. From above, God, my Father, the one who sent me, the one who knows all truth, that one. So Pilate, at this point, he says, okay, I'm done with this. I'm not gonna mess with this. 
He goes back out to the crowd and he tried to release him in verse 12. But the Jewish leader shouted, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. The people here, the Jewish leaders, they understand the ins and the outs of this political and religious system. They know how to apply pressure to Pilate. They know how to indirectly threaten him by accusing him of being against Caesar. They twist the situation and make Pilate cave. So Pilate is now caught in a politically suicidal position. He knows that Jesus is innocent, but he can't let him go without ending his own career and possibly his own life. So then what should be done with Jesus? The crowd begins to shout in verse 15. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him. Crucify him. That is exactly what they yelled over and over. And it was certainly not the voices of the disciples yelling crucify him. And there was no way that they could be silent in the crowd at that time. Perhaps they were shouting, let him go, he's innocent. But the loudest voices in the crowd are controlling the outcome. Pilate cannot do what is right without without severe consequences. And finally, he just, he gives up. And he gives in, and he says, fine but it's on you. It's on you. And Jesus gets handed over to be executed. And we'll continue in our reading. So they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place of the skull in Hebrew, Golgotha, And there they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In verse 23, Then when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. And then 28, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his lips. And when Jesus tasted it, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. It was the day of preparation. The Jewish leaders didn't want their bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. 
So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that the legs be broken and then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you may also continue to believe. These things happened in fulfillment of the scriptures that say, not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on the one they pierced. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the one who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes, and following the Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with his spices and long sheets of linen cloth. The place of the crucifixion was near a garden where they saw where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus died. Game over. No more Messiah. We come to that point where the disciples are left feeling utterly hopeless. Death is final. There's nothing else to be done. God didn't save them. And they weren't expecting anything to happen. Three days later, and they were just left in a dark, painful place. The confusion and despair must have been profound. And yet, the disciples did not have the whole story. The gospel was being lived out in present time for them. Almighty God had stepped into time and space to redeem his people from sin. And as Jesus said himself to Pilate, you have no power over me unless it was given from above. Every single bit of this life-shattering event had been planned by a powerful, loving God since the very beginning of time. But yet the disciples had no idea that the resurrection was just around the corner. What about us? Have you ever been to that place in your life and thought, 
God can't do anything about this. And you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and nothing has changed. Your struggles are still the same. There are situations in our lives that are, that are painful, that are dark, that are hard. And in those times, it's hard to hold on to hope as that current reality is just crushing in on us. I know this. I've been there. And just like the disciples, we don't have the full story yet. We cannot look into the future on how life will change, but we can look back to the cross. Because what was true then is still true today, even if it's hard to see. It was on the cross that God defeated sin, that he defeated death. He was victorious and he is alive today. He is with you and he is for you. God loves you deeply and offers you forgiveness. If it wasn't for this, we would not have that forgiveness. And if you have trusted Christ, you belong to him. Nothing can separate you from his love. Hope is your current reality and resurrection is around the corner. When the situation looked the bleakest, with the crowd chanting, crucify him, with the pain and the confusion and the lostness, resurrection was just around the corner. Even though the disciples didn't know the whole story, there was hope coming. Hope was their reality. Because he doesn't stay dead. Would you pray, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we remember just awful hardship, pain. Lord, we look upon your death in a very sorrowful. We reflect on ourselves because it's our sin that you took. It's our sin that caused you to be there. You did that out of love. God, you give us hope because we may not see the immediate future, but we do know that there is hope coming. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice on that cross. And we humbly bow before it Worshiping the one who hung on it, who is raised again and is in heaven. God, we praise your name.
Thank you, Jesus. Amen.